So our passage this morning is Malachi chapter 1. Uh, we'll be on the screens, but if you're following along, uh, we are in Malachi chapter 1. Um, we'll be going through this series, uh, the book of Malachi, while Stuart is away on sabbatical. Uh, it's funny because I don't get to do a lot of series. Usually when I'm up preaching, it's a break in between Stuart doing a series, and I just get a one-off. And So either I slowly go through a book, or I pick a psalm or a parable, because those are easy to do in one sermon. But this was the first series that I get to go through, and I'm really excited about it. I'm stoked, and I spent the first couple of days trying to come up with a good good title for my series, and I worked on it, and I sent it back and forth with Paul, and I finally sent it to Stuart, and Stuart's like, yeah, let's just go with Malachi. So our series is called Malachi. Um, I hope you enjoyed as much as I've enjoyed going through this book. It is uh, a wonderful book. It's right in between the Old and New Testament. And we'll see how that plays out, because it certainly does. Malachi is going to make calls to the priests, as we will see this morning. He's He's going to make demands of worship. But he's also going to look ahead to the Savior, saying this worship's leading to something. And so hopefully we see that as we go through this book. So let us dive in to Malachi chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. 
For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and his fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what weariness is this? This is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and you bring us, bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Dearly Father, this is your word, and so I ask that you are glorified this morning, that we may grow in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So I used, to, I used to play in band when I was in middle school and high school, and I played trombone all except for one year. My junior year, I played the baritone. And the reason for this is I just happened by accident to tear a hole in the bottom of my trombone slide. And we didn't have any spare trombones, so I knew how to play the sousaphone. The baritone is a nice in-between instrument. So for a while there, I played baritone. It's a small detail, except for this one piece that we were playing, which was the theme to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that theme, but in the original piece, it starts with these stringed instruments just going on these staccato notes very quickly. In our arrangement, that was the baritone part. And so we were supposed to play uh, these staccato notes, and I was not very good at it. It had triplets, and I was never good at triplets. And the reason I wasn't very good at this is because I never practiced. I would have been Evan's worst student. Like I was, by that time, my passion for band and music was waning. And so we had this piece, and it was difficult for me to play, but there were three, two other baritone players, and I was just like, they have it. So I did the motions, and I let them do the notes. And that plan worked out incredibly well right up until the day that neither of them showed up to class. And so all of a sudden, in front of at least 60 plus other people, I'm the only one playing this part of the piece. And I do miserably, because I never practiced, I was never good at it. And the band conductor, he just smiled and cut off the band which we were all technically playing, but it was just me. And he said, all right, let's rehearse this. And so then I had a 10-minute lesson in front of everybody else, which I never got in those 10 minutes. Yeah, I, I failed miserably. It was pretty embarrassing. Uh, but my, the reason why I failed miserably is because my approach was half-hearted. My, my concern for the music, for band, for improving at the instrument, uh, it wasn't there. And when we get to the book of Malachi, we get to a group of people that just are in a state of half-heartedness. There's a lack of concern. See, Israel 
previously had a pretty rough go of it. About two generations prior, they were in exile. They were conquered by another nation called Babylon. And they were under Babylon's rule, and they weren't even allowed to live in Jerusalem and Judah, their own nation, for about 70 to 80 years. And even when they return, after Babylon falls, they return, their return doesn't go smoothly because they get back and they're like, we immediately need to build our houses and our farms, and then we'll get to the temple. But their houses don't stand, their farms don't grow crops, and then the Lord sends his prophet Haggai and says, no, you need to build the temple, for I am your king, I am your God, and I come first. And so they do, and then... Israel is blessed. And now we're just a couple of generations from this great lesson that the Lord comes first, and we see that the priests are just going through the motions. As as God's people, that's not where we want to be. That's not where Israel wants to be, and as a church, that's not where we want to be. No, we are called to worship God and honor God. We are called to worship and honor God. See, God is worth the worship. God is worth honor. Uh, If you look with me at verse 6, you see that as God states to him, he says, as a son honors his father and a servant his master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? If, and if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. As God approaches the Israelites, he begins with this. He says, if then I am a father. This is how his rebuke begins. He's establishing the nature of their relationship. He's establishing who they are. He's not some distant being. He's not... Uh, God of way over there, saying, no, I know you. I'm your father. He doesn't say, you are my children, and then he leaves. That's not who he is. And this serves as a reminder for us this morning. We are blessed by a father that loves his children. We are blessed by a Lord, a God that loves his children. Too often we think of God as elsewhere, as some, someone foreign. Matter of fact, many of our founders had this view, like if God built the clock, he set it, and then left it alone. And if we have that attitude, it affects a lot of what we do. It can affect the way we pray, as if we pray, and then all of a sudden some angel comes and says, like, all right, I have the report, I'm going to go carry it to God. And then i got to wait for God to send a report back through this messenger. But that's not true. No, we're always in the presence of our Father. When we pray, we're with the Lord. The Israelites here are with, in the presence of the Father. We're in, with our family. No, there is no place we can go in which God's not already there. And so this is how he begins by ask, to ask for honor and fear. Now, fear in this 
uh, is more of respect and reverence. And the Lord's doing this is because he's their father. He's brought the Israelites into his family. Now, too often we can miss this. Right? I, I start my prayers, dear Heavenly Father. Almost every prayer I pray starts with that phrase. Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven. It is common for us as believers to refer to God as Father. But I, what I think is significantly less common it's for us to dwell on the fact that God is our Father. To meditate on what that means. Because we miss common things. We really do. Like, for instance, uh, as I said before, Stuart's out, and so I'm supposed to put together the worship service. Uh, and I see Stuart do it every week. I receive every communication he sends out considering the worship service. And so even though I receive it and I read those emails every week, um, going through, I had a lot of trouble this week because there's a different, different rhythm for me because I had to figure out what exactly is, does Stuart do. I had to talk with Abby, I had to talk with Paul, talked with Michelle, and we really worked together as a team putting it all together. Now I'm familiar with what Stuart does. But actually having to do it and actually dwelling upon it was a completely different experience. Likewise, we need, when we say God is Father, it is good to remind ourselves what exactly we're saying when we say God is our Father. Because I think we, over, we miss that overwhelming love. And indeed, it is overwhelming. And with the Israelites... Uh, he, he says how great and vast his love. If you look with me at verse 11, uh, God begins to say that this love is, rises from the sun to the setting. That his name will be great among the nations and every place incense will be offered to my name. A pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, as mentioned before, there's many prophecies of Jesus in this book. It's a short book, but they re he references Jesus quite a bit in the coming of the Savior. And this is pretty much the first one. Israel is God's people. Israel is God's children. And he's saying, not only you are my children, but I'm going to go beyond these borders. And I'm going to call and adopt people from every nation and tribe and tongue, and they will be mine. I'm going to go to the ends of the earth. The boundaries of the nations are not going to stop me. Earthly kingdoms will not stand against the Lord. As long as the day gives light, the Lord will shine on his children. And see, this is one of the great offerings of Jesus. This is one of the great things about salvation. It's not just for a singular people. No, indeed, Paul says, we, as Gentiles, are grafted into this family. If God is the tree that gives light, we are the branches that are grafted in so that we may bear fruit. 
So God in his message to the Israelites is saying, look, I am your father. Not only am I your father, but I'm going to be the father to all nations. That's what salvation does. That's what salvation is. See, we are strangers and orphans that are brought into the Lord's family. We, we are adopted. We are brought together. Jesus is our brother. God is our father. And this is the love that God offers. This is what he means when he says, I am father. This is what he means when he says, I am master. That he has brought us together. And I, I know we are the strangest looking family because we don't share genetic traits. But the love that we have in Christ is so much deeper than the, that. It's more uniting. It keeps us together. It allows us to call each other brother and sister. It's, it should bring us to awe. It should inspire us to worship. Because it is a tidal wave of love and not, some, not a small little pool in the backyard. And don't let our familiarity with the Lord move us away from his amazing love and his greatness. And he does end this passage with a reminder of exactly his greatness. For he says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You can, you can almost hear that thunderous rumble. For my name will be feared among the nations. Again, fear meaning reverence and awe. And so, yes, there is a tension. It is hard because when we think of our Father, we don't necessarily think, I, I need to worship a Father. I just want to love my Father. And we do want to be familiar with God as Father. We want to embrace Him as we would embrace our own fathers. But we, can't, we cannot afford to be flippant either. He's also our king. Now, the youth joke with me. Uh, they have fun giving me a hard time, and they've even saran wrapped my house. And that's fine because I'm a youth pastor. I'm not a king. I'm not a governor. I don't carry much authority. This is, I'm a youth pastor. God is our father, but he's also king. Is king among the nations. Now our father has done mighty deeds in ancient Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. Egypt, largest empire of all time. And God made them look foolish. Two generations prior to Malachi coming to Israel, he brings Israel out of Babylon. Making the nation of Babylon, the strongest empire of the time, look foolish. And this continues in the New Testament. Christ, as king, does nothing short of bringing salvation for his people. 
He raises the dead. He, he gives life. As Paul writes in Ephesians, we were dead in our sins, yet life is found in Christ. And so, because of that, sinners like me can proclaim the name of Jesus. No, our, our Father is majestic. He commands the heavens and the earth. Even our most powerful rulers and presidents and kings and lords and prime ministers pale in comparison to the authority and majesty that the Lord brings. He is the lion that rules the jungle. So when we worship, yes, we want to worship our God as Father, but we would do well to remember that we are worshiping the King. And so while we gather weekly, that does not and should not diminish the amazing grace that the Lord provides. Just because we worship fairly often doesn't make His love, His majesty, and His grace any less potent or more powerful. Indeed, when we look at the Lord and when we come to the Lord, we are called to respond to the Lord and we should respond with the fullness of our hearts. Because at some point, everyone will respond to God's greatness. At some point, whether it is in the here and now or in the life to come, everyone will respond to the greatness and the majesty of our Lord. But as we can see in these passages in the beginning in 7 and 8, uh, that the Israelites, they responded poorly. Matter of fact, the word that the Lord uses here in their offerings is polluted. You bring polluted offerings. Now, when it says polluted, it's not an environmental issue. He's not, he's not talking about uh, carbon emissions or anything along those lines. No, when he's talking about polluted offerings, there are essentially two ways that we can look at it. The first is this. Uh, the offerings that they were brought were either very, were either blind or sick or lame. And that's a very visible thing to see that it is polluted. There's nothing special about these offerings. It's not that people are bringing their best. Matter of fact, they're bringing the things that are very much subpar. Their worship and their sacrifices are the animals that they would have gotten rid of anyway. It was basically a people trying to figure out, well, I have some waste here in this livestock. How do, how do I get rid of it? I know. I'll take it to the temple to be sacrificed. These animals are ill. It's literally the least that these men could offer. And so that's what they're taking to the Lord. And that is why we have these polluted offerings on the altar. See, Israel had these laws to prevent this. They're basically ceremonial laws, basically laws that uh, govern how Israel was supposed to worship. And in those laws, it specifically forbade blind, sick, and lame animals. 
said, these are the animals that you cannot offer as sacrifice. Yet here are the priests allowing the ancient Israelites to offer these animals that were, that were not supposed to be offered. Specifically forbidden. So one way to look at it is, yeah, the offerings themselves are polluted. But the much deeper problem, and the one that I want to spend a little minute, a minute looking at, is that it's not the animals that really pollute the offering. It's the hearts of the people. See, that's the true problem. These priests, they're supposed to guard the offering. Uh, much like we fence the table at the Lord's Supper, there, there is a protection of the worship of the Lord. And that's part of the priest's main job. But like me playing baritone, they, they simply don't care that much. The offerings aren't worthy because the priests do not think that the Lord, the Father, and the King is not worthy of such offerings. If they did think it was worthy, they would do it. They would hold the offerings to a higher standard, like, no, you need to bring me your best. You need to bring the firstborn. But that's not what they're doing, because they can't muster up the concern or care. Because when you enjoy something, or you want to celebrate something, you do approach it with concern and care. For instance, last week was Father's Day. And our family, we were blessed enough to get some steaks. And so we threw some steaks on the grill. And I had a good time standing out there with my dad. And, but we kept an eye on those steaks. We made sure they were seasoned properly. Uh, we made sure that the fire wasn't too hot or too cool, that the temp was just right. We definitely made sure we didn't overcook those steaks. We made sure they were well rested before cutting into them. And they were delicious. But we took a lot of concern with those steaks because it was Father's Day. And we wanted to celebrate, and I certainly wanted to celebrate my father. And we wanted to have a good time. And because we cared, we did the best job we could with those steaks. If someone is important, we're going to take care of it. If something is important, we take care of it. We guard it. We keep it. It becomes precious to us. Yet, even Malachi notes, the offerings you bring, we would not even offer to the governor. Even, even, even your Lord over here wouldn't take the offerings you're bringing to God, and yet God is far greater than any political leader. So I want to encourage you this morning. Our worship is something that we should take care of. Our worship is something we need to be diligent in. We want Sunday morning to bring, we want to return the blessings that God's given us, so we want to worship in the fullness of our hearts. And that may mean that you have to rein in Saturday night a little bit more. So you can wake up and be alert and ready for Sunday morning worship. It may mean that you're going to have to cut back on a Sunday that is overscheduled. So you're not looking to rush out of the church at the first possible moment. Come ready to worship. 
Come ready to serve the Lord and to sing the praise of our God, our King, and our Father. Bring the fullness of your being into it. If we look at the end of this verse, uh, at verse 10, we see that Malachi is not kidding. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God's saying, look, it is, it is better for you not even to show up than go through, than to show and then just go through the motion. We see this in Revelation. John writes to the church of Laodicea, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I don't know if I can put it any better. The Lord despises anything that makes a mockery of worshiping him. And if you read, look at the end, it says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. What difficult words to hear. God, our Heavenly Father, creator of the heavens and the earth, of the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, the animals on land, the God who hung the stars in the sky, the God who brought people out of Egypt, the God who brings people, brought people out of Babylon, the God who sacrificed himself on the cross so that his people may be saved. He looks to him and he says, I am disappointed in you. I am disappointed in you. When we worship, we go before the Lord. We worship with one another. We, we come together because we are a family and we want to sing praises to the God who has brought us together that we may call him Father. The gathering of believers is not something that we can simply take or leave. I think we have misconception of what Sunday morning is as if uh, it's something that we may or may not do but it's not that important. No, our worship is not just a list of burdensome rituals, but it's a full-hearted response to the many blessings of God. You know, we are blessed to know Jesus. By all rights, we shouldn't know who Jesus is. By all rights, we, we should not be able to partake in worship and this love and grace. But because the Father loved us, we, we get to be here. And I know, I know some of us are here this morning and probably thinking, my life is not great at the moment. It is hard for me to worship. And so I would encourage us to be there for one another, to love each other, and we're going to dive into that next week as we look at the priests and the way that they should respond to God's love. But we have a, 
We have a Savior in Christ Jesus. We are saved from our sins. We're dead. Not on our way to death. Not dying. Not mostly dead. We are dead in our sins. And then Christ saved us and redeemed us. He delivered us from our own rebellion. He delivered us from our own pride. And he poured out his love on his people. He's shown us hope and he's provided us with eternal life. And when we come to worship, that worship is the response to the saving grace. And with that in mind, I do want to take a minute to look at one of the most difficult passages, maybe in Scripture, where the first three verses of Malachi. I'll start in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau's Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If God loves people, and his love goes beyond the borders of Israel, if his love goes to the nations and every tribe and every tongue, how can God also say that he hates someone? So, we need to remember the story of Jacob and Esau. If you're unfamiliar with Jacob and Esau, uh, they're brothers. Esau is the older brother by moments. Matter of fact, G Jacob was holding his ankle, which is why he gets the name Jacob, which means deceiver. They were Jacob and Esau were sons of Isaac, son who were sons of Abraham, who was the son of Abraham. Abraham being the man with whom God made the promise that the that God's people will number more than the stars in the sky. Abraham is who God makes the covenant promise with. And then we come to Jacob and Esau two generations later. Esau, Esau was the manly man. He was the one who went and hunted. He was the one who gathered the food. He, he tilled the farms. He grew the crops. And about Jacob, it said that he stayed in the house. Jacob was clever, and Jacob was intelligent, but Esau was the firstborn, and he had the birthright to be able to call Abraham father, Isaac father. The promise of salvation by all t intents and purposes should go through Esau. But there's a day in which Jacob was cooking a stew, and Esau just comes in from the field. Esau's exhausted. He's He's tired, it was a long day, and he says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. I'm tired, give me some food. Jacob said, eh, I'll do it if you sell me your birthright. Which is an awkward question to ask. But this is the kind of brother that Jacob is. And Esau's like, I'm about to die. Probably not, but... He's tired, and he's frustrated, and he's hungry. And he says, what good is my birthright to me? 
And Jacob said, swear to me now. And so Esau swears to him and sells his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gives him bread and lentil stew. Esau eats and drinks and he just goes on his way. And that's it. That's the end of the story. But it does end with this. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau should be in the line of salvation. Esau should be in the line of promise. He should be the one who gets to call God Father. The king of the universe. He's the one who should intimately know who the Lord is. That's his birthright. Yet he cares so little for it, he just sells it for some stew and some bread. This isn't, when it says the Lord hated Esau, it's not this sort of human aspect of hate where it's just animosity. But you see this disappointment and judgment for Esau's lack of action on his birthright and his lack of care. And none of his sons returned. Edom, the country named after Esau, doesn't return to Jerusalem, doesn't repent and say, no, 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 the birthright was more important than the stew. And so, yes, the Lord pours out his wrath on the nation of Edom. Because the nation of Edom had the right to call the Lord Father, and they refused. They just didn't care enough. They cared that little for the love of God. So I'm going to ask you this morning, how much do you value the blessings of Christ? Are you truly coming and worshiping God? Christ died on the cross that we might be saved. This is an amazing feat of love. Because He's resurrected and he ascends into heaven. Christ conquers death so that we may believe, so that we may have eternal life. We are sinners. We're, we're an evil people. And this is, these are the words of Jesus. Yet God in his compassion and love and mercy extends to us an invitation to the eternal life and to heaven. He extends to us an invitation of salvation from this death and our sins. Our Father goes through great lengths to love his people. And we are called to respond in worship. So when we do, when we gather Sunday mornings or we get, and we gather in small groups and we say we are going to worship the Lord, I'll say this, let us honor God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. Because we need to worship him with the fullness of our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that your love never becomes mundane. But that we find great joy and delight in it each and every day. 
When we come to you, Father, I pray that we may bring the fullness of our being, that we may worship and praise your name. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.